0: listening to the rainmaking podcast hosted by high stakes headhunter author and professional speaker Scott Love.
1: This is the Rainmaking Podcast and my name is Scott Love. I'm your host and thanks for joining me on the show. If you're in the business of getting business, then this is the show for you. And if you're in the business of getting business, you need to learn how to communicate your value to your client in a way that positively influences them and allows them to say yes to you. And our expert for this week is Dr. Zoe Chance, and she's an expert on the topic of influence. In fact, she wrote the book, Influence is Your Superpower. Zoe is a writer. She's a teacher. She's a researcher. She earned her doctorate from Harvard, and now she teaches at Yale School of Management, and her course is the most popular course at the school, which is the basis for her international bestseller, Influence is Your Superpower. Now, one thing I wanted to let you know about Zoe's actually coaching me on an issue during this interview, and I decided not to delete it. I could because it's kind of vulnerable. I'm not perfect. Hey, no judgment, okay? We've all got issues. But I decided to leave that in here just so you can kind of see how she thinks and how she can help you in terms of her expertise. Make sure you connect with her. On the show notes, we have links where you can connect with her on LinkedIn. You can get her book and you can go to her website. And also, if you have a minute, something I'd appreciate is going to Apple Podcasts and typing in a nice five-star review of the show that helps the show get more visibility. And if you learn something from Zoe, mention her name. I know she'd appreciate that, and I would as well. As always, this show is sponsored by Leopard Solutions' Legal Intelligence Suite of Products, Firmscape, and Leopard BI. Push ahead of the pack with the power of Leopard. And now, without further ado, here's Dr. Zoe Chance. Hey, this is Scott Love. Thanks for joining me on the Rainmaking Podcast. We've got a special guest today. We've got Zoe Chance talking about influence strategies for positive impact. Zoe, thanks for joining me on the show today.
0: Thank you so much for inviting me, Scott.
1: So let me ask you this. You're in the business of influence. How would you define that? I always like to start with working definitions and you're an academic, so I know that's important to you also. What would be a working definition of influence and how can we apply that to the world of selling professional services?
0: I go broad in the definition of influence, which is anything that impacts someone's thinking or behavior. So Mm -hmm. Lots and lots of stuff falls under that, like persuasion would be influencing through words and communication. Some behavioral economics nudges would fall under influence in the environment. Manipulation is a type of influence. So I guess I'm planting a big stake when I claim expertise and influence and make it so broad, but applying it to professional services, those of us working in professional services, all we do all day long Is influence, right? Right. And my particular expertise is interpersonal influence, which is relevant, I think, for most of the listeners in your show. And even when I'm talking to friends in law practice, and I mean, like, honestly, almost any domain, Scott, as you get to succeed and move ahead and you get to the top of your game, the most important thing that you do is interpersonal influence stuff. So some people will call it sales. And I know other people, other guests of yours have called that sales and claimed the whole domain. And whatever we call it, it is definitely true that our power and the success of our businesses as well come directly from our ability to relate to and influence other human beings.
1: Well, that's a very potent definition. And I like that. And a couple of things I got out of it, I think I got Three days worth of seminar material from what you said in the last two minutes. But let me kind of go down this line. I like how you said when you go up higher in the organization, when we advance in our careers, that's even more important that skill. So let's say somebody's listening and they've got a team of people that report to them, or they're on the front line in terms of front and center contact with the sophisticated market. How can they grow in this skill? If this is a skill, where, and I can just imagine a X, Y chart in my mind that as time continues, the need increases along with that. Uh, how do we improve in that skill?
0: So you think that I'm a nerd, but you're the <laughs> one coming up with the X, Y chart. I am. I Statistical love it.
1: process Here's, control. I can't stop. For thinking. each other's
0: views. <laughs> uh, so first of all, as many of your listeners will know, but some will have not already been encouraged Gaining expertise in public speaking, and this is not just because this is how Scott and I met each other, but gaining expertise in public speaking is one of the best things that you can do to succeed in your Mm -hmm. organization. Mm -hmm. Many, many organizations will even require their leadership to go through programs like Toastmasters and things like this. And this is because we are persuaded to make decisions on big topics by human beings, at least as much, and usually more than what we read, and certainly sales is a more powerful function than marketing. Right. And I'm from marketing, so I can dog my own discipline. I've done a little bit in sales, but uh, very low level sales stuff. In marketing, we're reaching out one to many, and this is just less powerful and less effective than sales reaching out one to one. And this is why. Marketing departments struggle to get budget, and this is why top salespeople will be earning even more than the CEO. Right.
1: That's profound. So is there any sort of course that you've had or that other people have talked about where somebody can study it academically? Or do you think just going forward, taking lessons on speaking through Toastmasters, just actually going forward and executing on those actions is what's the best way to grow in our skills, do you think?
0: Toastmasters is just one one tiny but meaningful thing that you can do. Honestly, Scott, I created this course that I teach at Yale School of Management. It's called Mastering Influence and Persuasion. Mm -hmm. Because when I was an MBA student, I felt like I didn't learn enough of the practical stuff and I wasn't taught enough of the people stuff that I then needed to use more than anything else in my job as a marketer. I was a brand manager for Barbie and I was spending 50% of my time on internal marketing and persuasion. That's interesting. Very surprising, yeah. And I've heard the same thing from other people. So in other disciplines, so I created this course and it didn't exist in any other business school either to bring together the best of what I had learned at that point, because I came back to academia after having already started a career in real world industry, marketing, sales. So I combined the psychology training that I had and behavioral economics research with actually even what I learned as an actor. I did some professional acting and directing for a little while, along with negotiations, public speaking, and sales and marketing. That's great. This book, like... Everybody, if you're interested in this stuff, you should totally buy my book. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) We're going
1: to put links on the show notes too.
0: Thank you. Thank you. It's doing really well. And it actually has been the number two fastest selling book on all of Amazon, which is totally insane. Yeah. We'll
1: we'll help make it number one. How's that?
0: Thank you. Yeah. Let's get to number one. (laughs) But also, like, that's just like, obviously, if you care enough about this topic to spend a half hour listening to this show, then... You should definitely care enough to check out a book. It doesn't have to be mine. There are lots of other great books, but I'm also releasing in the summertime a course on Coursera that's free for anyone in the world. They'll be translating it into eight different languages and it's called How to Ask for Anything. And the MBA course I teach is based on real world challenges outside of class. And that is exactly what the Coursera course is based on. So it's just a series of a whole bunch of real-world challenges that will be effective and will be fun.
1: That's great. Well, we're going to put all that information on the show notes. So anybody that's listening, if you want to get that, just check that out. And let me ask you this then, as somebody studies this, as they apply their skill, what do you think are some of the missteps or pitfalls or mistakes that people make in this? What, What have you seen from your
0: experience? You know, a lot of people think first of someone like a smarmy salesperson right. You know, typical used car, yada, yada. But the reality is that most of us are people pleasers. And I've learned this from not just conversations with now thousands of people I've been teaching, both students and executives, but also in the secret journals, the private diaries that students keep for my class, where I've had now, I guess, about a thousand students who are doing these real world challenges. And then they keep a journal where every week they reflect on what they did and what they were thinking. And what I've discovered is just people are really nice. Almost all of us are people pleasers. And what that means is first of all the good news is people are much more likely to say yes when we go ask them for something for favor, for help, invitation. Research finds they're two or three times more likely to say yes than we expect. Right. But then on the other side, the biggest mistake that we make is in not asking at all because we don't want to bother people. So we are like the opposite of that used car salesman guy, like extreme, 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 extreme opposite direction. And even people I talk to in sales, even most of the people who are killing it, who I've gotten to talk with and work with have some domain in their life where they're not comfortable advocating for themselves or asking (laughs) what they want or saying no. And, you know, like, Maybe it's with your teenage daughter, or maybe it's with your family, or maybe it's at your church or like whatever the context is, almost all of us. But actually, now that I'm saying almost all of us, Scott, can I ask you? So you do this professionally, right? Business development, recruiting, relating to people. Is there any area in your life in which you're like, "Mm, not super comfortable?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And for me, it's always been getting paid to speak where I like that, but I don't want to be that self-promoter. And I think it's because I've seen all these other speakers out there that you see them with. And just imagine they've got these sequin sports jackets and that's (laughs) the men, you know, and they're out there with silly hats and, hey, I'm here to speak and I'm a motivational speaker. And I just don't want to be seen as that guy. So, So part of it is, yeah, I'm a credentialed expert in that and I can solve their most pressing challenges about getting more work from clients. But I think that's been my issue with that, you know, and how do so I'm not asking for therapy on the podcast here, but how how would I get over that? How would one who is listening to this show that has that same challenge in their own area, because we've all got one, what would you recommend for us to be able to walk forward and ameliorate that deficit? What would you recommend, Zoe?
0: Let me ask you, Scott. So first of all, I can totally relate. And the Raw, raw, in in-your-face kind of um, motivational speaking thing, I guess is fun for a lot of people, but I run the other way. Yeah, and yeah. I'm, I'm also just <laughs> shy and introverted. And so even when I'm doing public speaking, I'm not the person out at the bar with everybody yeah. afterward. I'm up in my- Yeah, mirror, me too. Like taking a bath, yeah. watching Netflix or something. Yeah. I'm,
1: I remember going to the small group for the introverted speakers group, and I walk into the room and nobody else is there, so I knew I was in the right spot.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. Yes. yes. Oh my gosh, you guys, anyone who hasn't been to a speaking conference, it's exhausting. Yeah. yeah. I'm home afterwards, and I just feel like I can't listen. I've
1: never made it beyond the second day of a speaker's conference. Usually that's when I go home, but because all the energy, but that's not bad. I mean, that's just how those people are. So, so yeah. how can we? How but, but can let we... me just
0: let me just yeah. ask you is it the asking for business part? in the professional speaking thing? Is it the, when you're up there speaking, planting the seeds for whatever is the next step? Like what's the specific part that feels
1: Oh, I think for me, it's just having to say, hey, I'd like to ask for you to book me. When part of me says, listen, you need to book me. <laughs> you need to, You need to book me. And it's interesting because in other types of business development, you have to go through the process and you have to ask the business. I guess within that particular area, I think, you know, I don't want to ask for that. Maybe I think it's kind of below me, but it shouldn't be. But for me, that's my own issue in that area.
0: I see. No, I don't think that's weird at all. Because in so many contexts, it's uncomfortable advocating for ourselves. Because it feels like uh, maybe like not classy, not something that we're supposed to do. Yeah, right, right. Advocate for other people and they can advocate for us.
1: Absolutely right. Yeah.
0: So like I work with a speaking agent that does Mm -hmm. all of the stuff that you're talking about and they do the negotiating because I'm a good negotiator and I actually love negotiating, but when it's my own labor that I'm negotiating, I just don't dig it. I just don't want to be that person. And so for you to be and anyone else, In our situation to be working with somebody who does some of the asking and some of the negotiating on your behalf, it's not just easier for you, but part of the reason that you feel uncomfortable is that you don't want to make them uncomfortable to make you feel bad. So they can actually more easily say no to Scott's agent assistant Mm -hmm. person. right? Right. And it's so different than doing business development on behalf of an organization.
1: Right. That's right. Yeah. So let's say somebody feels uncomfortable, but they have to go out and they have to sell work. What would you recommend for them to do to feel comfortable with that?
0: First of all, a majorly underused influence strategy is asking people how to influence them. And they will usually tell you. So What do you mean?
1: Tell me about this. What does that mean?
0: So for example, there's someone that you would like to book you as a speaker, say, and <laughs> You have a reasonable rapport with this person so that you can ask them advice and you ask them, listen, say there's somebody like me and potentially you might be open to booking them as a speaker. Like, how do you like to be approached? Like when, you know, how would you like to ask for a follow-up? What is it that you say that I should know means I should never talk to you again and I should just leave this alone. And it's in almost any context, but when it comes up a whole lot is when people are starting businesses. So this is kind of like that. So you go and you talk to a bunch and when you're starting a job in sales, that that's also like starting a business or business development. You just go ask people, Hey, how do you like to be influenced? Yeah. They tell you, and then you say, okay, is it like, can we do that thing? And they're like, yeah, sure. And it's so not weird. This is great. So You can ask your partner, you can ask your child, your colleague, your boss, ask them how they want to be influenced and then do the thing. Like, like when we're working with managers, those of us who have bosses, they don't always tell us things like how they like to be communicated with. Do they want us to knock on their door? Do they want us to call them on the phone? Do they want strictly email? What about you know, off hours, things like this. Do they want to have one-on-ones weekly with us? Do they, would they like it to be later? Would they like us to be coming to them with solutions or do we want, do they want, which is usually what they want, <laughs> right. or so, do they want us to come to them with questions? But even within the solutions, do they want to have two options or three, or do they want us to come with just the best thing so they can say, yes, okay, great, go. There are so many individual preferences that someone like me could never say, oh, and I never would, this kind of person, you should do this, or this kind of person, you should do that. When we're talking about individual influence, we just get to ask that person, and then they tell us.
1: That's a great idea. Tell me about the research. When you say you've done research-based studies on this, what are some things that you've done? How have you compiled this research? I'm curious about that.
0: So the research that I started doing and was doing for a long time is in this area called behavioral economics, which is another chunk of influence than interpersonal influence. And I describe behavioral economics, for those not familiar with it, as being like the love child of economics and psychology. So economics is the study of social behaviors. So certainly buying and selling, but it also includes marriage, violence, all kinds of other social behaviors. And then psychology is the study of mental processes that doesn't usually care about the outcome. When you put those together, you get what's called behavioral economics. It's really psychology, but you're looking at the mental processes that give rise to specific behaviors. And I know that was super complicated. The books that people might be familiar with in this area are things like Danny Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, Uh, Richard Thaler, Cass Sunstein wrote a book called Nudge. And a simple example is that I've studied and plenty of other people looking at people's eating behavior. Mm -hmm. Let's say you wanted to eat a little more healthily. The very best thing that you can do is to set up the environment to help you eat more healthily. And so Mm -hmm. that means like in my house, it meant we were just snacking on cookies a lot, and we had junk food in the cupboard where you open up the cupboard and it's just right there in your face. It's better than having it on the counter, right. but you open up the cupboard, there's the cookies and everything else. And we just got an opaque box, and we put the opaque box in the cupboard, put the cookies and all the other junk food in it, and literally, what started happening is that the food would mold before we got to eat it or get stale, and. We've done these experiments in workplaces, like at Google, I've worked with the Google food team and done a bunch of field experiments there. And when you're looking at nudges, which is what this is, mm-hmm. a huge, like the majority of all nudges, so environmental changes to nudge behavior in one direction or another, have to do it with making something easier or more difficult. Mm-hmm. So like at Google, we sent spies to just take note to write down when people were snacking and they were in a particular break room where there were two beverage stations, coffee and stuff. And one of those was closer to the snack area. And one of those was farther away. And we just had our spies, undergraduate research assistants, they pretend to be texting and they're hanging out and noting, okay, for everyone who takes a drink, did they take a snack? And people taking a drink from the closer area to the snacks were 50% more likely to take a snack. Like, is this like brain surgery? No, <laughs> you knew already that they would be more likely to take a snack. But fifty percent is actually a lot more. Right. And then we calculated, okay, how many snacks are people taking? And for a guy who's working in this area and you know going to get a drink three times a day, which is normal, it would be normal to gain about four pounds of weight per year. And people at Google complain about. gaining weight. They call it the Noogler 15 because Google employees are called Googlers and new ones are called Nooglers. It's like the freshman 15 when you go to college and start drinking a lot of beer. There's just too much free food all over at Google.
1: (laughs) So what's the most surprising variable or thing that you've seen in your research? What surprised you the most when you studied and did all your research on influence?
0: I'll actually share the thing that is the most recent cool finding. I don't know if this is the most surprising of all of them, but because it was new, I was excited and interested about this. And this had to do with negotiations. And I was just asking people, how do you feel about negotiations? And the vast majority of people, but even more women than men say, hate it. It is scary. When I ask people, describe negotiations in three words, they use words like bullying, pressure, things like that. However, 43% of men and 17% of women do like negotiating. So if you're one of those people listening, great, good for you. And the interesting thing though, to me was that after I asked people, okay, how do you feel about negotiating? Then I asked them to describe their most recent negotiation. And then I asked, how did you feel about that? And even the people who said they hate negotiating, when they described their most recent negotiation, it went pretty well. And almost all the time, they got at least some of what they wanted and they felt good about it. Then I asked some more people about this, like, help me understand this. We hate negotiating, but it actually goes well and then we feel good about it. What's going on with that? And what I realized from further conversations is that we've been collectively, culturally misled about what negotiations look like by Hollywood. We see all these scenes of Of bullies who are trying to bully each other. So somebody wins, somebody loses. The person who wins gets all the good stuff. The person who loses is a sucker and they're ashamed and they feel terrible. So we expect that that's what a negotiation is going to be like. But it's typically just two people trying to figure out how to make something work together.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's interesting. That's very insightful, Zoe. So tell us then what are three action steps if people want to improve our skill and our knowledge of influence, what would be three action steps you'd recommend that our listeners take, Zoe?
0: This is not a specific action, but it's a mindset. So if we can be broad about it, the most important thing we can do is we can shift our mindset from approaching someone when we're trying to influence them. When you think of it as like a transaction, then the other person becomes just a means or an obstacle to you getting what you want. Mm -hmm. And when we can shift to the idea of approaching someone as the opening to a potential relationship. I think a lot of people working in business development, this is how they roll at work in the context of business development for sure. But even to be thinking about and practicing, okay, what does that look like when I stop at the coffee shop? to get a cup of coffee? What does that look like in all the other contexts of my life? The second thing is just ask and ask for more than you expect to get more often than you already are and ask more people than you Mm -hmm. already are. When you approach them with warmth and maybe a playful sense of humor, they're not going to not like you for asking.
1: Right. That's great. I like that with warmth and a playful sense of humor. You said, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then the third thing would just be saying no. I challenge anyone listening who feels like getting on board to practice with 24 hours of no. This is a 24 hour challenge. And you say no to every single person who asks you for something. (laughs) Experience what that feels like. You realize that nobody dies. You can always change your mind if you need to. And what happens is as you get more comfortable saying no, then you become more comfortable asking and your requests lose that edge of neediness that can be repulsive to other people. So you're helping them be more comfortable saying no, which helps them actually have more inclination to say yes.
1: Those are great ideas, Zoe. And tell us about the offerings that you have. I know that you've written a book. We're going to put that on the show notes, but what else do you do that you'd like our listeners to know
0: about? You know What I would like your listeners to know about is the cause that I'm supporting, which is a climate activist organization. It's international grassroots. It's called 350.org. And I'm donating half of the profits from my book to 350.org because my perspective on influence is basically the Spider-Man doctrine that with great power comes great responsibility. So on this path of becoming more influential, the prize is that you get to work on bigger and bigger problems. So I'm excited to help people who are working on the climate crisis.
1: That's fantastic, Zoe. We'll put that link on the show notes as well. Thank you so much for being here. I'd love to have you back on the show in the future, Zoe. Thanks so much for being here with us today.
0: Great to meet you. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for listening to the Rainmaking Podcast. For more information about our recruiting services for international law firms, visit our website at attorneysearchgroup.com. To inquire about having Scott speak at your next convention, conference, sales meeting, or executive retreat, visit therainmakingpodcast.com.